invite you to open your scriptures to Romans chapter 11, verse 32. And while you're turning there, I'm going to welcome personally the approximately 10 people that are gathered here this morning. It's quite a sight. We'll probably share a picture of this at some point with, uh, with our church family. Um, they're scattered all over to help me look at the camera, um, but very good to have each of them, mostly staff and their families, uh, but what a gift they are to me. And to the rest of the church, we miss you. Uh, we miss not gathering with you this morning. Uh, I miss not coming in and hearing the music team uh, getting ready to lead us in worship. miss not seeing the host greeters at the door. Uh, so even though we're scattered, you're not alone. Uh, you are greatly missed, and we love you. We are in the second sermon of a series we started last week entitled Walking with God. Uh, last week, we considered what Scripture had to say about walking with God through fear and uncertainty. Uh, this morning, uh, we'd like to talk about and see what the Scriptures have to say about walking with God through disease and sickness. Uh, this morning, I've structured that big idea around three stabilizing truths. The first is this, that God is sovereign. Uh, the second, God has sovereignly chosen to use disease and sickness, which is a bad thing, to accomplish his purposes, uh, which is a good thing. And then third, God sent his son to suffer so that we could be ultimately delivered from suffering. So walking with God through disease and sickness. The word pandemic describes the widespread occurrence of disease in excess of what might normally be expected in a geographical region. And that is happening right now. We're not being alarmists. We're simply facing the facts. Uh, in the past, cholera, the bubonic plague, smallpox, and influenza are some of the most lethal diseases in human history. Two historic examples. There's many, but here are two. The Black Death, a global epidemic of bubonic plague that struck Europe and Asia in the mid-1300s. The plague arrived in Europe in 1347 when 12 ships from the Black Sea docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. That plague was responsible, and this is staggering, for the death of one-third of the world's population, nearly 200 million lives. The second example is the Spanish flu in 1918. Uh, either your parents or your grandparents know somebody from that time period, so this is more recent. It was an avian-born flu. Avian means it relates to birds, and it resulted in 50 million deaths worldwide. Again, staggering staggering disease and death toll. As of this morning, the Italian prime minister is saying this is the worst crisis since World War II, and now this, the casualties are starting to surge in Spain. Uh, the death toll in Italy alone since Wednesday and the successive days afterwards is, is, is alarming. Now, it would be easy, even for believers, either out of compassion or from cynicism, to conclude that, that all suffering is pointless, that this situation is pointless. Let's just get on with our lives. Um, to us, suffering does seem pointless, uh, but our view is limited. It is limited by our humanity. It is limited by our finite mind. Um, and sometimes we think because we can't comprehend any reason for disease or suffering or sickness that there can't be a reason. But there are divine reasons, and we're going to see that in the Scripture. I've asked you to open up uh, to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 11. Look at verse 34. It asks a rhetorical question, a question that where, the, where the answer is so obvious uh, 
don't even, it, it, there's, there's not really even a need to answer the question, but look what it says. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Right? This is the mind of the one who existed even before the heavens were created. He existed before angels, before even the angel Satan, before all humanity. He created the giraffe and galaxies, galaxies we've not even discovered, and every complex human being. Who has known his mind? Or who has been his counselor? Has anyone ever pulled up a chair, if you would, to God's celestial desk and offered unique and helpful input in how he should run his world? Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might repaid, be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's consider three stabilizing truths in our unstable time. Number one, God is sovereign. The Bible presents to us a God who reigns. That's what sovereignty is. A God who is in complete control. A God who is not limited by time or circumstance. A God who is never taken off guard. Now this does not remove human responsibility in life, but it does highlight the order of importance for our hope. God is in control and no one or nothing else. Now, this truth may not provide immediate comfort just to say that God is sovereign, um, but it will provide stability in times of uncertainty. When we use the term sovereign in reference to God, we mean exactly what the word intends, supreme power and supreme authority. In 1 Timothy 6.15, where Paul speaks of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, he then describes Jesus this way, quote, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we mean by sovereignty. One of a kind, the supreme ruler. That means there is no legal defense against him, no supreme court where an appeal can be made, uh, no bribe to sway his decision. It has been said absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that would be true except for one glaring exception, and that is God. Yes, God has absolute power and authority, but he also rules with absolute knowledge and absolute justice and absolute fairness and absolute love and absolute kindness and mercy and compassion. The psalmist says this in Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11, I am God, he's saying this, Yahweh is saying this to his people, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Daniel Gachuki from Nairobi said this in an article that was put out this week. Because God rules the world by his wise and unyielding providence, we can be assured that there is not a single maverick molecule in the entire universe. King Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson uh, when he contracted, by God's design, a condition called boanthropy. Uh, People that suffer from this condition, it is a mental derangement that causes the person afflicted to start to eat grass and graze like a cow. This king, this 
One supreme ruler, so he thought at the time, gives his own personal testimony in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. He says this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We are facing a horrific virus, but it is neither random nor is it in control. God is sovereign. That's our first stabilizing truth as we find ourselves in our current situation. He's not only completely in control, but nothing is out of his control. The second stabilizing truth this morning connected to God's sovereignty is this. God has sovereignly chosen to use disease and sickness to accomplish his purposes. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Scripture says this, For whatever was written in former days, referring back to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, of the Old Testament writings, we might have, what's the next word? Hope. Old Testament examples fuel a confident expectation in the wisdom and goodness of of God. They are intended to bring encouragement and hope. Now, there are too many examples in the Old Testament to do a complete biblical theology of disease. So, for our learning and our comfort and our encouragement for hope this morning, we're going to look at three examples. The first one is found in Genesis chapter 12. So, go all the way back to the first book in our scriptures to the 12th chapter of Genesis. In this narrative section, we're going to see that the Lord protects Abraham and Sarah. The episode begins in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. I'll begin reading there. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but they will let you live. Notice the context. Severe famine, an unpleasant circumstance, gets Abraham where God wanted him all along, up into Egypt. Fear of death, Abraham's fear of his own death, exposes Abraham's lack of trust in God. The unknowns of Egypt present the loss of control of the situation. Uh, One of our men here at Highland shared with me this week something he had heard in an interview on Monday. On an interview, she asked a psychologist why she thought people were going out and buying large quantities of toilet paper and other random supplies, and she said they're trying to buy control. Here we have Abraham losing control of the situation and fearful. He escapes one danger, famine in Canaan, and he sort of travels up and he finds himself in a second danger, which is the unknowns of Egypt. And he knows as an immigrant He will not have the support or protection others have in the land. See, Egypt was the natural place to go for famine, and we'll see this in the next illustration, and that is because the Nile River provided a much more certain food supply. And what Abraham feared started to happen. Look at Genesis chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 17, because Sarah was taken to Pharaoh's house, but look at what it says in verse 17. But the Lord, what did he do? 
the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues. The Lord was the engineer of the plagues. Why? Keep reading. Because of who? Because of Sarah, Abram's wife. See, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was no dummy. He connects the dots. He finds out the truth. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? And, and it seems like in, in the narrative section before, Pharaoh had already given Abraham incredible gifts as a type of down payment or bride price. Now then, here is your wife, he says, take her and go. Verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So what is the primary lesson here in this first illustration? We might not get it at first, but the Lord's intervening with great plagues, the Lord's intervening with the tool of disease and sickness was a kindness to Abraham and Sarah. And even bigger than that, it is a kindness to the nations, you and me, because of the promise from, from Genesis 12 that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, blessed through a seed, a singular seed who would be the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is preserving his plan of redemption and the tool that he uses in part is disease. Abraham is learning who the object of his faith must be. And Abraham needed to learn to trust God even when circumstances were uncertain. Okay, so the Lord protects Abraham and Sarah, and by extension, the nations. And our second example now also comes out of North Africa. Turn forward to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. The Lord protected Abraham and Sarah, and now we see that the Lord prepares and changes Moses. In Exodus chapter 4, God is preparing Moses to deliver his people, who are slaves in Egypt, but this also involves a necessary and sustained confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses is certain the people won't believe him. He's certain his own people won't believe him, that God has sent him to rescue them. So in response, God provides three signs. Now notice this about the signs. Each sign changes one thing into another. Each sign uh, changes something harmless into something harmful. But with the first two signs, God changes it back. The third sign is different, and it seems to be a warning beyond Moses to the nation of Egypt, and the third sign is permanent. So the first sign, staff to serpent. Okay, we're not going to read that in the narrative. We're going to focus on one particular part, but he changes a staff into a serpent. And of course, Moses runs, as most of us would, um, but what Moses learns is God is in control of inanimate objects and his animal kingdom. The second one is the one I want us to focus on. Look at Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. The Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Okay. Immediate disease engineered by God. Verse 7 then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Immediate healing given by God. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe 
the latter sign. See, the latter sign almost kind of brings a heavier weight to it because there was a strong association in ancient thinking, even in Egypt during this time, that, that disease was connected with the power of the gods, specifically the gods' ability to judge and punish. So, so that immediate healing would have been very impressive to the people. The third sign, we'll see this more in, in our third illustration, is water drawn from the Nile that becomes blood. It doesn't go back to being water again. And this anticipates the first sign in Exodus chapter 7 uh, where this is done on the large scale. And this is actually now going beyond Moses and, tu- and, and touching the trust of the Egyptians, which is the Nile River, the source of life and, and worshipped as a god. So what is the lesson in this illustration? Exodus is essentially a book about knowing God through personal experience. I believe many Christians, many American Christians, know God theoretically. They know a lot about God. They attend a lot of Bible studies, and they hoard information about God. But I'm not sure we know him by personal experience. Exodus is a book about God knowing about us knowing him through that personal experience. And guess what he uses to draw people into an experiential knowledge of who he is? Disease and plagues and even the death of all firstborn males on one of the signs and wonders. Here's the lesson. Moses needed to learn who God really was, and so do we. It wasn't about Moses' ability to speak. It wasn't about his skill set or his power. Moses is learning that it is God who is the one who matters. The Hebrew people needed to be reminded of who their God was, and so do we. Stretch that out a little farther. The Egyptians needed to find out who God was. Part of this knowledge of God, this believability, came through the disease and plagues. So even the Egyptians were supposed to see that it was only God that could remove the plagues and only God that could heal them from suffering. So for Moses to say, in effect, look what Yahweh can do with disease was basically to ask them, can any of the gods you are worshiping heal like this? Even the Nile, the source of life for them, something they worshiped, could be changed by God into blood. You know, we need to be reminded of who God is. And the nations, like Egypt, need to find out who God is. There is no God like Yahweh. And do you know when we start to look for him? Do you know when we start to experience him beyond just black words on the white page of a text? Is through experience. And this may sound silly, but what's available in our grocery stores, maybe our Nile River, the source of life, can be changed in a day. We're learning that. The security of your job can be changed in a day. Your kids' sports can be changed in a day. I say this with compassion and gentleness, but your graduation can be changed in a day. Our health can be changed in a day. God desires for people to know him, not just theoretically or as a sterile theological truth. He invites us to know him personally, and guess what he often uses to do that and to accomplish his purpose? Disease and sickness as a reminder of our weakness and our need for him. So God protected Abraham and Sarah, and God prepared and changed Moses. And our third and final example this morning takes us to a successful but sick 
military commander. Turn in your scriptures to 2 Kings chapter 5. Here we meet a man, a battle-hardened and successful military commander. 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1 introduces us to him. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because, and I want you to see this phrase, by him, a Gentile commander, not an Israelite commander, but by him the Lord had given victory to what nation? To Syria. So the sovereignty of God, even over this Gentile, is announced right at the beginning of the story. So whatever Naaman thinks about his accomplishments and his abilities, his success is a gift from God. That stands out at the beginning of this narrative. Now look at, look at the latter part of verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor, but keep reading, but he was what? He was a leper. Enter once again God's tool of disease. Verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So a letter letter is sent to the king of Israel. The the king of Israel thinks he's being set up because a mighty, mighty warrior, the enemy, is asking him for healing. The king of Israel reads the letter and he responds. I love the humanness of these stories. I love the drama. Uh, The king of Israel rightly responds in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Am I a god to kill and to make alive? This man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? And the king of Israel is correct. He can't do what only God can. The prophet Elisha hears about this. He hears that the king of Israel has torn his clothes. Elisha knows God, knows God by experience, and he tells the king of Israel to send Naaman to him. Look at verse 9. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. An oppressive arrival. And guess who this mighty warrior expects to meet? The prophet. But look at what happens in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger, a servant to him, saying, he doesn't even talk to him face to face, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Of course, no surprise in in, in the unfolding drama. Look at verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand, and I want you to hear the humor in this, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman wanted instant healing on the spot. But Naaman wrongly concluded two things. He wrongly concluded that the prophet, not God, was the healer. That's the crisis of the story. But he also wrongly thought the quality of the water mattered. Look at verse 12. This is Naaman speaking. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Listen to what just happened. Cleansing is offered. Cleansing for leprosy is offered, but he doesn't like the way it's offered, so he gets angry. How so much like the world that is offered cleansing in Jesus, but they go away in a rage because they don't like who it is found in. Look at verse 13. I want you to see the, the wisdom, 
the insight of those who are despised in society. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, they're talking to Naaman, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? See, Naaman's servants were probably more accustomed to being treated in the way Naaman was just treated by Elisha. Kindly, as good servants, they pressed upon their master to do what he has been told. And here's what happens. In a seeming inferior river and in the absence of the prophet, he's healed. Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. But there's more happening and there always is with God. Even in our current situation, there is more happening. Look at verse 15. Then he, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Okay, now I want you to note this because this is where the unpleasant trail of leprosy was leading all along. Naaman says this, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Verse 17, From now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. God uses the tool of leprosy to turn this Gentile military commander's eyes to the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords. And the vehicle God used, again, was disease. So we may not understand all that God is doing in the world through something that is horrific, but we can understand that God in the past has used disease and sickness to accomplish his purposes that are good. So protection of Abraham and Sarah, the preparation and change of Moses, and the physical and spiritual cleansing of Naaman, which brings us to our final stabilizing truth this morning, Number three, God sent his son to suffer so that we could be ultimately delivered from suffering. The prophet Elisha, from our previous illustration, uh, is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. I want you to see this. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. Uh, Luke records that he finds his way in that scroll to a specific place. He reads one of the prophecies about what Messiah would do, and then he hands the scroll back. We pick up our portion in verse 20 of Luke chapter 4. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, were fixed on Jesus. And he, Jesus, began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? And they said, okay, the latter part of verse 22, is not this Joseph's son? Verse 23, and Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Now, it's interesting, out of all the proverbs that were available, he chooses this one. Doubtless you will say to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself You know, there's just something about sickness and disease that rivets our attention back on what is most important. Verse 24, And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. See, they were rejecting him, and Jesus knew his own people were rejecting him. 
Go forward, verse, verse 24. He, he gives an illustration of Elijah, but look at the second illustration he uses. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but who? But only Naaman the Syrian. The two examples Jesus gives, one of Elijah, one of Elisha, uh, both Gentiles were dealt graciously with God over Israelites, and the people in that synagogue knew it, and they didn't like it. So look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In the next chapter, Luke chapter 5, verse 30, he is in confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elites of the day. Look at what he says in verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Remember, there's just something about sickness and disease that rivets our attention back on what matters most. Look at verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, those who think they're spiritually healthy, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is talking about a spiritual sickness, a spiritual leprosy, a spiritual virus. Jesus is the great physician, but he is not the great physician for himself. A few years later, men would say exactly as Jesus said in Matthew 27. Let me just read it. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others or he healed others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Oh, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Do you know it will be the fact that Jesus chose not to heal himself, not to let him down, himself down from the cross, not to save himself from death, that we can experience the truth of Psalm 103, verses 2 to 4. Listen to what that says so we can put that promise in a Christological context. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. That promise in Psalm 103 was fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the most horrific sign given to Egypt was the death of the firstborn males. If only they had applied the blood of the lamb, they could have prevented that specific sign and wonder And even now, perhaps, God is using disease to graciously get our attention, using something bad and something horrific to accomplish something good, that we would confess what John the Baptist did in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter connected that forgiveness to healing in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. The last scripture I want us to look at is the simplicity of spiritual healing illustrated by physical healing. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. I'll just read it. 
And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Do you know that Jesus can do that with our sin, sickness? Disease and sickness are like twin thunderbolts to remind us of our greatest need, healing from sin, sickness. There is a healer, and his name is Jesus. God is sovereign. God has sovereignly chosen to use disease and sickness to accomplish his good purposes. And God sent his son to suffer so that we could be ultimately healed and delivered from suffering. No, the disease is not good, and the sickness is not good, and death is not good. It's an enemy, but God is good. And even in an unpleasant time, we can say what Joseph did to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Brothers and sisters, Romans fifteen thirteen says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Sean Walker, who's one of our pastor elders who serves on staff as an associate pastor, will now close us in prayer, provide a few announcements, and end our, end our time together with a benediction. And especially, especially to our Highlands family this morning, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. Pastor Sean.